0: Morning. morning. What a good song. We, uh, Scott Loring and uh, Riley and I spent the last uh, week. Every evening, we, I'm gonna get you. Sorry, excuse me. I'm all over the place. Uh, at uh, at 3MT, which is a um, youth mission camp with the association. Uh, some of you can shake your head no if I'm missing this because you grew up with 3MT and I did not. But it's a youth mission camp, and youth groups from all over the city, the area come together, not the city, but throughout this region. They get together and they do mission work throughout the day, and then at night they worship together. And that's uh, that individual up being one of the songs we sang the most. And there's a lot of moments where we just tried to teach these kids, these people worshiping with us, uh, the leaders. Like, man, at our church, we talk about looking to Jesus a lot. We say, look to Jesus. We say, Jesus is everything. And that song really sums up the call to action to speak Jesus over these things. How does Jesus speak into this? How does Jesus become all authority in this thing? Because the truth is he already has all authority. The truth is he already is everything. And so that song reminds us that we're going to speak Jesus. And uh, it's especially meaningful to to Scott and I, and we've got a lot going on in our families everyone does, you know, a lot going on in your families and in the world around you and say, man, I'm going to speak Jesus over these things. I'm going to trust that he really does have all power and authority. Um, This morning, we're going to continue in John. If you've got your little John book, uh, you can grab that. We'll be in John chapter 3, closing out John 3. If you don't, uh, grab a Bible. There should be a hardback black one in the seats in front of you, but we're in John chapter 3. We did kind of two weeks on the Nicodemus conversation. We talked about the chessboard. We had the cups here last week with being filled and all that. And uh, you can go back and hear those things, listen to those uh, online, through the podcast, whatever. But we're going to finish out. John chapter three this morning. Uh, I encourage you to grab a Bible uh, because like we say every week, man, this is this is the word of God. This is what's eternal, true, what has authority. My words come and go. You know, I, I pray and, and as shepherds, we seek that God would tell us what to speak and that his spirit would move. But really this is where it all starts and ends is his word. So get that out. We'll be in John chapter three. We're going to read John three, um, starting in verse 25. We'll get there here in a minute. Um, let's go ahead and pray as we're turning and as we're, we're getting focused. God, we ask again that you would uh, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. May we see your vision. Teach us that you must increase and we must decrease. Teach us to speak Jesus, to look to Jesus, to trust in you. Thank you for your great love for us, God. May your word bear its weight on us and may we look to Jesus in all we do. Amen. Um, there are uh, a handful of classes in college that I failed because I didn't understand how to be a freshman in high school. It's a really weird reality going from having people tell you how to live your life, and then all of a sudden you have all this freedom, and it really wrecks a lot of people, uh, and I knew that when I, my wife and I worked at SBU, and, and we were in kind of college life. Man, we just watched the retention rate just tanks after that first semester because they just can't handle it, man. You turn 18 or 19, and our culture says, here, you can have all authority in your life, <laughs> and some people just can't handle that. And I remember uh, the, some of the classes that I did very poorly and I, I got a D in psychology, which is really ironic for the uh, amount of counseling and the classes I ended up later taking. I got a C minus in my intro level to Bible classes, which again is ironic because I ended up taking a ton of those and saying that. Uh, I got a D in American government, which some of you will laugh at that and think... That checks out. (laughs) Idiot. I'm just kidding. And then uh, uh, I dropped this class. There's a class. I thought I was going to be an English major. uh, And it turns out being an English major is just reading really boring literature and writing really boring papers on it over and over and over. No offense if you're an English major. But uh, that was one of like the six majors I jumped to. And I had this uh, literature class. And the only thing I remember about the class was reading Plato's Allegory of the Cave. And then I dropped the class. And so if you're familiar with Plato's Allegory of the Cave, um, then uh, my brief summary of it will probably hurt you because you probably care about philosophy and and as do I, and this doesn't nearly cover. But the the allegory is a conversation with Socrates and another guy, and Plato recalls it, and the allegory depicts these humans who are chained in a cave, and they see shadows on the wall coming from light outside, fire, Uh, I don't remember specifically, but the idea is they're seeing shadows on the wall, and their understanding of reality is solely through shadows. That's it. And uh, there's some surmising of what would happen if someone leaves the cave and they see the actual source of light, the actual source of these things. They experience the fullness. And then, of course, they would come back to the cave and try to tell these people. But the prisoners, they would probably kill that person because they don't want to hear truth or whatever. And, and it goes on and on. There's so many implications there. There's so much. Uh, you hear kind of the, the foundation work of enlightenment and, and people like, oh, we're, we can experience truth. We can get above what we see. that All that sort of thing in there. I think it's interesting when we talk about objective reality that Of course, uh, some of the greatest thinkers of that time would be assuming, man, there is more than what we see. There's maybe something else here. And as I've thought about this, I've uh, been thinking about this analogy today. I'm going to do this cute little thing here because I've gotten really proppy the last few weeks. I don't know why, but um, uh, this just kind of came to mind. I think they're going to dim the lights. I practiced this earlier, and if this doesn't work out, then, you know, whatever. Oh, that's so good. Look at that. So uh, some of you can't see this, and that's just the way it is. Sorry how our banners and things are set up, but you can imagine a shadow. Um, <laughs> So there's apples here, and it, it's, it's silly because, you know, you can see this here. You can see the real apples. But it would be really absurd if I saw these apples here, and I lived my entire life around these as apples. I love apples. I have deep opinions about apples. Um, I bake apple pie. I care a lot about apples as a fruit. But if my entire, if I start explaining an apple to you, and this is what I explain, a shadow, you would start thinking, maybe you don't understand apples. Like, maybe you, you don't understand the color of them, the full roundness of them, the taste of them in fact, um, I couldn't taste this shadow. If I did taste this shadow, it would only taste like the thing that it's projected on. It wouldn't taste fully like an apple. And we could take this analogy so far, right? And and we could talk about it forever, but you know, we're all brilliant in here. Sure. And we we get all the different connections and all this, or maybe you don't, but at least you understand, Hey, don't live for shadows. That'd be really silly. We do this with children all the time. We teach them, right? We give them analogies. Say like, Hey, this, you think this is the most important thing. Eating this entire bag of candy is the most important thing, but actually obesity, sugar rush, red 40 puking later, all those things aren't as good as eating the entire bag candy, right? This, this bag candy is kind of a shadow, your perception of eating it. And that's kind of the backdrop of John. So far, is it not? You guys can bring the lights up. I don't need to, to keep talking about apples. A key thing to turn that flashlight up whenever you feel, feel like it, uh, or it can burn the battery out. It's okay. Um, and so then, we, the backdrop of John has, has it not constantly been this hey, you perceive things this way but actually Jesus is fulfilling them in ways you can't even recognize. You perceive marriage and purification rites look like this, but actually Jesus is fulfilling that. And he's, he's a better wine. He's a better fulfillment. He's a better joy. He's a better lamb sacrifice. He's above those things. You perceive the temple and sacrifices in this way and paying the temple tax. But actually Jesus is beyond that. He's above all the adulterations you make of the temple. Constantly, John is pulling us into this reality that, Hey, maybe you see a shadow. I think it's Interesting. It's kind of the same sort of thing that, that that Plato and Socrates are thinking, and now John comes in and says, "Hey, actually, there is a deeper reality. There is something more here." It's really dangerous to say phrases like "all of life is X" because there's always someone in the room that's like, "What about this?" and they get really like sassy with you, and and that's fine. Uh, and I'm not someone who likes to commit too many things, so I, I kind of dance around words sometimes. But I, I could argue pretty heavily. All of life is about glory. Say glory. And hope, say hope. Yeah, and uh, and of course, you say, what about love? Ah, see, we only understand love because of its weight, because of glory, right? And so, of course, love is super important. In fact, it's arguably the most important thing, but love is still found in the category of hope and of the weight it holds, the glory that it holds. And so, uh, to define glory, uh, we could say glory is high renown, honor, magnificence, great beauty, right? Biblically, the word, I've used this word a lot here, and I love it. It's a big deal. I was going to have Joe come down here and jump on me as kind of an analogy, for his kabod, but the Hebrew word is kabod. Say kabod. You have to say it like that. Kabod. Like summon in your inner Mufasa. Kabod. Everything the light touches. Uh, anyway, so uh, this is the Hebrew word kabod, and it means weight, right? It comes from the Hebrew kabod, which means weight, heaviness. And, and when we talk about the glory of something, we're talking about its weight, its heaviness, its value. And that's why our English translation would be high-renowned, honor, magnificence, beauty, because of its weight. Glory captures our attentions and hearts. That's, that's the whole focus. We are glory junkies, as one pastor says that I like, Paul Tripp, if you know him. Uh, we always want these new things, a new tool, uh, catching the big fish, new shoes, promotions at work, uh, the best brownies, uh, new house, Funny videos or movies. We love to experience the world around us and people doing extreme things. The glory that's there. From beautiful sunsets, roar of a lion, watching humans do incredible feats that wow us. We love glory. We love to see the world around us fascinate us. Things amaze us. The thing is with glory, we always want more. Like, it's never enough. The best chocolate you've ever eaten is never enough. In fact, just say in a room, hey, this is the best chocolate I've eaten, and everyone will say, one-up you. Well... You know, it's like, have you tried like, man, this is the best apple pie I've ever had where you haven't had Miss Cheryl's apple dumpling, but whatever. It's like everything, there's a tension. There's always something better. There's never enough promotion at work because there's something more. There's never the best taco because there's always a better taco, right? You see an image that's what all social media exists is to remind us of the glory that we're not tasting yet, right? Something else that's out there. I need this. I want this, which leads us to hope. Hope is a desire for a particular outcome. We hope for things, stuffs, outcomes that will bring more glory and ultimately fulfillment in any situation in life. We all have things that we hope in. Right now, if you take a minute to say it, of course, like we're in church, it's Sunday morning, I'm a pastor, I tucked in my shirt, holy cow, like, um, no, don't, 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 don't. You're going to ruin it, right? You got too excited last time and it was months before I did it again, okay? Calm down, okay? Calm down. Uh, So... (laughs) I lost all train of thought there. I'm sorry. We all have things we hope for. Like you hope that I'll tuck in my shirt more often. Um, and, And you hope in different situations. I want you to take a minute just to what comes to mind. What is it that you're hoping in? And of course, in church, we would say like, oh, we hope in Jesus. Stop. Like, we're going to get there. Yes, that's the churchy answer, sure. Like, we speak Jesus. But there's so many other things we hope in because we're glory junkies. We all have something we think would be better. When retirement kicks in, when our kids get out of the house, when we finally have children, when when we we get this new job, if I could just go home and finish the bottle so that I can get high again. Whatever it is, there's something we hope in, right? If, If I could get this sort of fulfillment, there's some hope of something, some desire, some expectation. Hope always has three parts. It has an assessment, an object, and an expectation. You assess the world around you because you're smart. You figured it out. Oh, I I understand. I assess this. I can compare these things. And then there's an object. There's something else I must hope in some glory, something more that I need, something that has heaviness. I need more heaviness. I need more value. I need more beauty. And then there's an expectation. If this, then this. Man, if I do this thing, then if I do the dishes, then Nikki might give me a kiss. Right? If I get this job, then if I, you know, whatever, there's always something. I give all these analogies. I feel like when I give too many analogies, you all think that I'm just a wildly insecure and thin person. You're right. But, uh, and that's, that's the way it is. We hope in these things. We all want glory and hope. Now, John 3.25. This is kind of the backdrop. Put all those things together. Shadows, glory, hope. Boom. John 3.25. This is right after the Nicodemus thing. Right? John has his little side where he says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but the world wanted darkness, right? Because they step into the light, right? They'll be exposed, and their deeds will be wrought with God. Here's the next story. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. The only other time that word's ever used, purification, by the way, in John, is the purification jars that we talked about in John chapter 2. Uh, there's probably connections there. We're going to talk more about it another time. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi. Again, typically in John, Rabbi is for Jesus. And now, all of a sudden, they're, they're, see, John's creating this tension. Wait, wait, I thought Jesus was the Rabbi. That's what Nicodemus called him. That's what his disciples called him when Jesus came. No, no, no. John the Baptist is the Rabbi here. Do you feel the tension? Who's the Rabbi? Of the gospel of John. Is it John the Baptist or is it Jesus? That's what John's by inviting us into, right? Who's the preacher memorial? Who's the best preacher in town? Who's the strongest guy in the room? That sort of tension, right? It's clearly Garrett. Anyway, uh, kidding. so discussion rose amongst them. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Jesus ministry is getting big. John rabbi rabboni see this. Do you see, you see over there, this guy, this new guy from Nazareth, he's he's getting real big. Watch him. He's climbing the ladder. He, his disciples are baptizing. It says here that Jesus is baptizing. John clarifies that at the beginning of chapter four. He says, Jesus didn't baptize nobody. His disciples were baptizing. And so, you know, however you interpret that, it doesn't really make a huge difference, but there's an interesting thing here. We're going to talk all about baptism next week. Next week, Baptism. That's a sermon. We're going to talk about what it means in scripture. Not going to cover that right now, but there's this tension here. Hey, Jesus is looking pretty good. And what's the implication? Man, my voice keeps cracking. I didn't realize how much it's going out. Sing all week. And your voice just goes. What's the implication here? Jesus is better. He's bigger. You should be concerned. We're comparing. We've assessed how things are going. There's an object that we understand and we have an expectation and it's getting dashed. John the Baptist, wake up. Are you concerned? You best be. He's going to take away your bottom line. He's, it's going to be a bad deal. That's the tension we walk into, this comparison. Comparison and concern, glory and hope, things being dashed. I, I don't need to emphasize the toxicity of the comparison culture we live in. It's a pretty obvious understanding that we constantly compare. It's how it makes sense of the world. Who are you if not compared to someone else? What are you if not compared to something else? Like there's such a constant comparison. That's how we make sense of the world. That's why we enjoy stories. That's where narrative comes from. And so comparison in itself at its crux is not sinful or bad. That's not the point. But it's worth noting to be human is to compare because that's how we make sense of the world. C.S. Lewis has this to say about comparison and its connection to pride. I think it's very interesting. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer, cleverer, better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich and clever and good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Ah, Come on, C.S. Lewis. It hurts, right? Hits me right in my pride bone. Because it is true. Man, we're just constantly comparing. And what would we make sense of the world if we were constantly... Comparing. It's the typical way we make sense of the world and the relationships, our possession, our security, our performance of life. It, it's not wrong in itself, you see, because comparison can draw us to something greater. We could look at this around us and say, I don't want to be chained to the wall staring at shadows. There must be something greater. There must be something more. Or comparing, c- comparison can lead to say, no, no, no. I must be more. I'm the most important thing. I must understand things better. And it turns into a egocentric focus of self, pursuing our own glory, or what some scholars have called shadow glories, (laughs) things that we think are the full substance, things that we pour everything into, but they actually don't have any substance because you can't really taste or eat them in their fullness. We think we can, but they're not fully there. More on that here in a little bit. So what are we comparing to? This constant comparison. What are they comparing to, right? John. John's disciples come to him and say, hey, what are they comparing? They're comparing to glory. So everything's about glory and hope. Say, so, hey, man, this needs to be more. Things are shifting. We see this weight that we have, and it's becoming less weighty. It's becoming less glorious. So something's got to shift here, John. You should be concerned about this. And that's our constant thing, our perception of glory and what we hope in brings uh, that brings us glory. Uh, sometimes it's for others, but it's ultimately still for ourselves. I... Uh, I have this tension in life for about twelve years now. When I do woodworking, I really want to own a planer, a thickness planer. And if you do woodworking at all, if you know anything about planers, I'm not going to explain it to you. Um, it it doesn't matter. It's it's a tool, and it's an expensive tool. You don't buy a cheap planer. Does anyone know? You guys know what a planer is? Uh, it it cut, it shaves the sides of wood right and it gives a uniform side it doesn't flatten it like some people think it gives uniform sides and there are so many times when you're building something it could save hours of sanding uh, it also you could take really bad wood and make it more useful uh, when you see people create really beautiful things out of pallets they're usually using a planer in some way because it, it gives uniform and i really want one and i could talk about the hope in it right so i have a sa- and I understand the object, it's the planer, and the expectation I have that it's going to bring, and the glory. Man, all the stuff I build with wood will be so much easier and better if I have this planer. The issue is that they're $800, at least like kind of entry, the the right one, about $800, and I just, man, I just can't sling it. There's one on sale right now for 599 and I just, gosh, DeWalt, why are you doing that? They used to be $300. You guys remember that? Like 10 years ago, you gave them for $300. Now all of a sudden you guys don't care. You're like, quit talking about planers. What more you got? But this is the tension, right? I'll be satisfied once I finally obtain this planer. I'll make woodworking so much easier. I'll throw wood chips like nobody's business. I'll just be Captain Wood Chip. Please call me Captain Wood Chip from now on. Um, Or Captain Chocolate Chip, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Where did that come from? Captain Chocolate Chip. John's disciples, they're convinced that their assessment, their comparison is right. The object of their expectation was off, the glory was shifting. I want to talk about this pride, this comparison for a minute. I want to fast forward to an issue Paul has in 1 Corinthians. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 3, um, uh, I feel like I need to make a side note real quick. We read 1 Corinthians. One day as a church, we'll read all through First Corinthians. We pull so much theology about things out of this singular letter of Paul. And I just want, I, before you go to 1 Corinthians 11 or 12 or 13 or wherever your favorite place is to categorize your understanding of X thing of all of theology. Understand this. Paul was writing First Corinthians because they were messing things up. They were messing everything up. And so when you read it and you think Paul's giving them all the boundaries of the Holy Spirit or all the boundaries on speaking in tongues where people can debate those things there, understand Paul was speaking. He was playing defense. He was stepping in to say, you guys are messing this up. And it is a very deeply layered issue. And it's interesting. A lot of the biggest issues discussed in 1 Corinthians are issues the church has struggled with all the time because Paul's not trying to tell you exactly perfectly how it all works. That's not the point of the letter. The letter is saying, you Corinthians are making a mistake of this. This, and here's how you got to think about it. And spoiler alert, his decision constantly, his conclusion is look to Jesus. That's what Paul does over and over and over. And so here we have kind of a similar, this is how it starts. Paul emphasizes, hey, um, y'all are pointing to different men and saying, I'm of this guy. I'm of this guy. I'm of Paul, Apollos, Cephas. I'm of Jesus, right? And there's this tension. They're boasting about different men. It'd be like uh, uh, as a pastor, uh, I got to be careful saying this. I don't want to paint the wrong picture, but as a pastor, I never stop hearing about the best pastor in town Uh, and it's never me which is fine like that's not why I do this more on that here in a minute but I could just definitely tell you who constantly tells me who the best man this guy is so profound he's always preaching or music I had someone ask me sometime last three months What's your worship like at your church? it's like, man, I don't know. If you're asking the question, we're probably not going to make you happy. I don't, you know, I don't know how to answer that. And that's the tension. And so we constantly, we have an idea of this is what this thing is, right? And and this is what's happening in 1 Corinthians 3. If you want to look there, it'll be on the screen. Paul says in 3.21, So let no one boast in men. And then in chapter four, he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. Christ is above. That's constantly Paul's pattern. We're just (laughs) servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Verse six, none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And so there's a lot. We could, we could, man, write a whole book. Actually, one of my favorite books by Tim Keller is on these verses. Uh, we've bought some copies. It'll be on that table next week. But um, this, this whole idea of being puffed up, this is what I land on today. So we have this comparison, this toxic thing. It's what it means to be human. We have this glory issue where we look at shadow glories. And we hope in things that maybe aren't fully there. These shadow things we grasp at. And, and John the Baptist's disciples, they're in the same boat. They're like, hey... Jesus getting big. Where are you at? Like, what are we doing here? I, my hope's that. And then Paul says the same thing. And he uses the phrase puffed up. This is what happens to us when we decide to compare. When we step into a world that says, man, I need to compare and I need to be better. My pride, everything comes back to me. I need to be richer, fitter. I need to be more secure. I need to be better than these people. I don't want to be this kind of story. I want to be this kind of story. I want to find myself as hero of my narrative. And Paul says that puffs us up. The Greek word there is like an organ that's overinflated. Just imagine someone just sticking a turkey baster into your gut and just... (sighs) I'm going to keep doing it. So you're uncomfortable. I mean, just have you ever felt bloated and just like, uh, man, there's all sorts of, uh, like crass words you can use. i just just so big and uncomfortable. This is the language Paul's using. You're puffed up. Here's what happens when pride and comparison and puffed up things happen. We're so inflated Four things happen. We get empty, painful, busy, and fragile. All of this comparison that C.S. Lewis talked about, all of these shadow glories, all these false hopes that we have, they ultimately leave us to be empty, painful, busy, and fragile, chasing shadow glories, hoping in the wrong things. We're empty because we want to be bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So uncomfortable, but there's nothing inside of us. Like the hole in the cup we said last week, just constantly draining out. We're so empty, constantly being inflated, but always empty. And because we're constantly inflated, we're painful. Most days we experience being unsatisfied, just so inflated and big, but it's so painful, anxious, depressed tense, frustrated, angry towards ourselves and others. We're busy. We're constantly needing to inflate, to fuel our pride, to fuel our ego, to match the comparison, to meet the hope that we have, to have more glory. We're busy. We're going, we're going, we're going. It's like when we talked several weeks ago about busyness and distraction. Why are we so busy? And we said, hurriedness is incompatible with love because love is patient. But the person who's ever living for comparison, for, for shadow glories, man, we're constantly busy because we need something to fulfill us. We must be enough. We must have enough. We must accomplish enough. There's never enough glory. And so we're hoping and more and more. And then we're fragile like a balloon. So easily popped. I thought about blowing up a balloon and popping it, but I didn't want to terrify my son who hates it. So we're so fragile and you walk around every day and the littlest thing will just set you off because it's so painful, so inflated, constantly trying to chase after these things. Our comparison, our pride, our ego, it ultimately leaves us empty, painful, busy, and fragile, or as Paul would say, puffed up. And Paul's conclusion is to look to Jesus. Here's the thing about glory. This world is wonderfully glorious. I mean, there's so many beautiful things in the world. We were Last night, my kids were going to bed. We were just talking about the good things of the day. And I was like, man, talking about what each of us are thankful for. Some of my kids got to jump on the trampoline together in the rain, and and uh, they were joyful about that. Like, man, I'm so glad we got to jump on the trampoline in the rain. It was really cool, right? Uh, Nikki got to do some, some different tasks in the sunroom to make it what she wanted. She sanded down some things and painted it and all that. Uh, I was building some shelves. Uh, I was covered in sawdust most of the day, which is the life I want a lot of times is so good. Um, I figured out how to how to make a jig since i couldn 't use the table saw the way I wanted to, and so I created a jig to cut the same thing over and over and over with my circular saw and Asher helped and there 's a lot of good things on all those things have glory. but all the glories of this world, whether it be a really great taco, the best brownie, the best promotion all these good things they 're meant to be a sign they 're shadow they 're pointing to the substance to something else. And when you make a sign, your destination and not the destination, then you stand underneath the Iowa sign and you say, welcome to Iowa. Here I am. And I got a newsflash for you. It doesn't matter what state it is. If you're just standing underneath the sign, it's kind of like, this is, is this all we got here? No, it's not the destination. It's just pointing to the destination. That's the thing about glory. Glory is always meant to captivate our hearts. There's a reason why God made tacos good. God didn't have to make food good. God didn't have to make music pretty right? God didn't need to make sense to me. He didn't need to to make sex so great. God didn't need to do those things, but he did them because he is glorious and everything should be pointing that he is glorious. All of it should be a big finger pointing back to him to say, hey, I've given you these things in my love. So you understand that I'm the one sustaining you. I'm the one who creates good things, every good thing. And isn't it interesting that all of the struggles, if you were just to go home and list the struggles that you know are in your life, all of them, Or holding too tightly to a shadow or holding too tightly to something that you think is all glory, all hope. It's not the thing in itself. Because God is meant to be the thing in itself. He's the glory. He's the objective source. He's the ultimate reality. Here's the gospel truth. Jesus was emptied so that you could be full. He went through pain and suffering so you could be healed and have life. He took the punishment and declares the verdict for you so that you don't have to be busy ever trying to fulfill, to cast the verdict yourself with trying to earn it yourself. He leaves you with his peace filled with his spirit. He became fragile and broken to death so that you could have strength and power in his name by his spirit. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. We've been healed. You don't have to live in this comparison culture, constantly chasing after constantly being empty and busy and painful and fragile. If you're feeling that way this morning, if there are things you are like, man, this is my life. Like I'm acting tough and I'm here and I put on the outfit and I'm at church. I'm watching from home, but I am just empty and busy and fragile and painful. The Bible would tell you Jesus did those things for you so you don't have to. The verdict's already in. That's why John 2, 1 John 2 tells us that, that hey, I'm writing to you that you don't sin. But when you do sin, we have an advocate. We have one who stands before the Father on our behalf. Jesus Christ, the righteous, declaring that we are right with him, that we have righteousness with him. When we put our focus on Jesus, our hope, we see true reality and light, his glory. And all the shadows start fading away. All of a sudden, we're able to see an apple for what it is for something God gave us, probably the best fruit. I don't know. I don't like picking favorites, but, and say, man, this is, this points to how good God is. This apple is only good because God is good. And that thing is bad because God is good. And I understand a rotten apple because I know what a good apple is. And I understand goodness in general because I understand the father. Right? Look at how John responds to this. This is what we're trying to learn from the story. Well, here's how John, John just steps in and he tells us, you'd expect John the Baptist to be like, oh, you're right. I didn't. Yeah. Oh, no. It's so interesting what John says. He just cuts right through. John the Baptist in John chapter three. I'm sorry. It's so confusing that we keep saying John and referring to John the evangelist and John the Baptist. I didn't want to keep saying JTB up here and confuse everyone, but you know, John the Baptist, JTB, you get it. So JTB answers, a person cannot receive even one thing. Unless it is given to him from heaven. That is where several cups of coffee and long walks, just to take that in. And say, a person can't receive anything. What do you have? Person in the room, anyone listening, what do you have? What do you think you have that? Why do you think you earned it? Why do you think it's from you? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And it's interesting this language, he says from heaven, other translations, someone have another translation from above. John's calling us back to where Jesus says if you want to enter the kingdom you need to be born again born from above. Oh, no one has anything unless it's given to them from what is above given them from heaven. You yourself bear witness that I said I'm not the Christ. See John recognizes his role already. He says, "Hold on. I don't have anything. This this glory and hope that you're putting on me, you're trying to put this weight on me. You're trying to say I'm the guy, I'm the executive, I'm important stop. I don't have anything unless it comes from above. I don't have anything unless it comes from the Lord is the implication. And he says, you know, you understand. You heard me say it. I know my role. Listen to what he says. I am not the Christ, but I have sent before him. I've been sent before him. The one who is the bro- who has the bride is the bridegroom. Verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and bears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He says, I'm not the Christ. I know my role. I know know that I'm not supposed to be any more than just obediently following the role that God's given me. I don't desire and hope for more than just following Jesus. I don't need more glory because I understand that he has all glory. That I don't possess anything. Everything's been given me from up above. You see the peace in John's words? He's not worried. He's not worried that his whole ministry is going to collapse. It's not even on his mind, it seems like. His mind is on Jesus. Why is he so happy? He tells us. He says, the joy of mine is now complete. Why? Why is his joy complete? He rejoices greatly that the bridegroom has the bride. We we don't have time to unpack that fully, but there's going to be some verses on the screen here. You can take a picture of it with your phone or you can furiously write if you're trying to keep up, right? But in general, John the Baptist would have clearly been familiar with the Old Testament passages referring to Israel as being the bride of the Lord. He would be clearly, he would understand all of that. He would understand all the implications at Mount Sinai. We've talked about this up here so much about at Mount Sinai. It was a marital covenant they were making. All the covenant language. Language, is marital language. There is was an understanding that God is bringing a bride, that he's washing her clean and that he is making a right relationship. That's why we have marriage to point to his glory, to his love. That's why broken marriage is such a problem. That's why when people go through pain and suffering and divorce and, and all this broken stuff, you see, it's why it's so, so frustrating and unbearable to us because it's spo- we, we want more. We hope for more. We hope In the full right relationship between the bride and the bridegroom is only seen in the Lord and having a right relationship with us. Seen through Jesus, having a right relationship with his church. And John the Baptist would have clearly been familiar with this. And he's saying, look, my joy is complete because my vision is not on me. My vision is that he is fulfilling all things. He's from above and he's fulfilling all the right relationships. This marriage relationship that has been broken. He's going to wash it clean and make it right. The New Testament church pictured Christ as the bridegroom. You can see that in several passages. The famous marriage passage is in Ephesians 5. Anyone who's ever been through marriage counseling or been around marriage stuff, you go to Ephesians 5. Why? Because, well, sometimes we, we try to make it say things that it doesn't say. The most important point Paul's making in Ephesians 5 is, hey, look to what God has done for us, for his church, for his bride. That's the kind of marriage you need to have. If you have problems in your marriage, it's because you don't understand the relationship that God's gone through to have a right relationship with his bride. You don't understand commitment and sacrifice. Love. That's what love is. And that's why he says that, that you must love as, as a sacrifice, as Christ sacrificed for the church. John has no need to compare, to be puffed up with pride, to be empty, busy, painful, fragile. He has a complete different vision, a completely different vision. He says his joy is now complete. His pleasure doesn't come from his popularity, his influence. He's not focused on some shadow that he can't touch. He's got the real thing. The bridegroom is here. He's made all things right. This bridegroom language reminds us of why we gather in church. I mean, you can rip into the revelation passages there about how one day it's all going to be fulfilled, but, but church, one of the reasons I like, why are we here on Sunday? Why do we gather? This is a microcosm. This is a small vision. It ripples forward like a guitar strumming chord that ripples through eternity that reminds us this is what it's going to look like when all things are made new. Us enjoying life together, celebrating the Lord together. This is why we do things and we say we worship God passionately. We connect with each other authentically. We grow to know God deeply. We go declare the gospel boldly. All those things we do together, recognizing that, that it's all about Him in the right relationship He's given us. And so When we gather in church on Sundays, we're reminding each other, hey, there is is a bridegroom who has purchased his bride, and we celebrate that right relationship. This is why we suffer through broken marriages together. This is why we see his restoration. When Jesus increases, joy increases. I'm going to say that again. It sounds really churchy, but it's important to hear. When Jesus increases, joy increases. This is why John can so passionately say, he must increase. I must decrease. Or some translations, which I've memorized like better, it says he must become greater and I must become less. It's this understanding that when Jesus increases, joy increases and it must Right? This is uh, um, what John reminded us in John one fourteen when it said Jesus is the fullness of his glory. Uh, Habakkuk 2.14 says that God, God is going to fill the whole earth with his glory. Uh, imagine this. When we say glory was what? Glory is weight. Wait. Kabod, right? That's what glory is. And and we've got this weight, this kabod. And and then if that what how do we get that? How do we understand what is ultimately weighty? What has all weight? What has all what's the source of that? What's the floor that it stands on? It's the Lord. And he says he's filling the earth with his glory as water fills the sea beyond measure, right? You man, you want to imagine the depths of the sea and how terrifying the ocean is it's so deep and big and scary we can't map it all so big and and that's the language the bible uses to compare god's glory it's beyond our understanding and so the bible steps in this says, hey hey he must increase because he can only increase like I, the, the biggest things we know about the universe is that it's constantly expanding right shake your head nerds with me right i'm looking at you joe it's constantly expanding Isn't it interesting that when we understand the glory of God, we understand who He is, it's constantly expanding. We can't understand enough because He is constantly bigger. All authority has been given to Him. No matter what new authority comes, what new regiment, what new government, all authority is His. He's constantly increasing. And John just steps into that and says, I humbly accept that He must increase because He can only increase philosophically. That's all He can do. That's who He is. He is glory. He is weight. I must decrease in the light of his glory and his weight and his power and his caboose. Man, I must recognize that I I I don't that my shadow glories fall apart. That the things that I think my glory, my importance, my hopes, all those things fall short of him. We crush under the weight of his glory. This is why drug addictions lead to the same place every time. This is why alcoholism leads to the same place. This is why sex addicts leads the same place. This is why all the things that we hope in. This is why we hear constantly people uh, at the end of their life have these regrets and have these tensions because all these stories end in this understanding that when we put the glory in ourselves, it crushes us. We can't hold that weight. Only he can hold that weight because it's a sign that points to who he is. The world, the flesh, and the devil is constantly trying to get our focus on the shadows, on the things that 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 might give us glory, that might give us hope, and that might be where you're at today. There might be these things that are the most important thing to you, and you recognize, man, I don't know. Here's the test: I don't know how he must increase in this situation. How does he increase at my job? How does he increase in my hobby? How does he increase in my parenting? Tim Keller says, Jesus Christ's kingship will not crush you. He was crushed for you. Jesus Christ's kingship can't crush you. When you look to his glory, when you trust his glory, it doesn't crush you because he was crushed for you. He made him who knew no sin become sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. Listen to how John ends this in John 3. Um, John the Evangelist, not John the Baptist. John uh, verse 31. He who comes from above is above all, and he who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Everyone receives his testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true. Everything he said is true. Everything, all of this, that whole Old Testament stuff, it's true. The stories are true. Paul would say we find our yes and amen in all of his promises. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Imagine that. What is the spirit we talked about last week? Ruach, numats, the very presence of God. And he's the one that gives us a new heart, right? So why we have these cups. He gives us a new heart. It can hold water. It can be filled without leaking. He's the one. He gives us his spirit without measure. Are you getting his spirit without measure? Is, is the shadow enough for you? It's not enough for me. Is the planer going to be enough for me? Is a new bow going to be enough? Is making Nikki love me more going to be enough? Is being the best dad in the room, the strongest deadlifter in the room, is that ever going to be It's not because he has all glory. Because it all belongs to him. He gives the spirit without measure. I can't do things limitlessly. But that's the lie of our culture. You are limitless. Through your phone, through your brain, through all the technologies you have, you have no limitation. And those things constantly fail us. They bring us to tension, anxiety, depression, being empty, being painful, being fragile, being busy. He gives the spirit without measure. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Here it is. Verse 36, whoever believes, there's that word again. That's all over John. Whoever trusts, whoever trusts in the son in Jesus has eternal life. John three 16, We've heard that. Or John one eight. It's almost like John's having a theme, isn't it? John, John 20 verse 30 says, if you believe you have eternal life, life of the ages, you have what life is supposed to be. Not this shadow junk not these false perceptions, not these lies, these twists, which begs the question, do I know what life is? Am I making life about something that's maybe less? How would I know? Well, it must be in Jesus. I must believe in him who believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. Just like we talked about last week, Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. If you are dirt and divine breath, if God has breathed into you and you've chosen to separate from him by following your own way through your sin and rebellion, then you will continue to traject away from God. You will die and you will be gone and you will be eternally separated for, from him in hell, as the Bible would tell us. What do we do with that? It's because only his wrath can only be on us because he's a just God because because he loves the world. And this gives you the hope that if you believe in him, the gospel implications are pretty simple here. This passage ends with a contrast between those who believe and those who refuse to obey the son. That's it. Those are your two options. The gospel is a true story with profound implications and none of us can avoid the choice to either follow Jesus or remain in our sin rebellion against God. How do we respond to this? Man, I'd love to just simply say, well, stop being in the toxic comparison culture. Just stop. Maybe for you that means stop being on social media for a little bit. And I, man, I know that I'm the old fogey that's so against those things and I'm sorry, I didn't try to become that. I used to work Geek Squad, guys. I was technology man. And it's just like all the research says it's destroying us. What if you didn't have social media for a few months? Would that be a way that he might increase and you might become less? Is it, would that be helpful? I don't know. Like it'd be worth asking the question. This toxic comparison culture where we feel puffed up, empty, painful, busy, and fragile. Here's how John does it. And here's how, what he wants us to know. He doesn't even answer any specific paradigm or speak into the comparison. He doesn't even touch it because he has a completely different vision. He says, he must increase and I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. You see, Jesus knows the apple, and he knows the shadow glory and he knows the foolishness, the foolishnessness of us trying to grab the shadows. He knows everything because he sees from above. Just like, uh, when, um, uh, I've heard Ron tell stories of being with the, uh, Highway patrol and stuff and how they use helicopters. Why? Because they can see things that no one else see. You're trying to track down somebody. You're not going to outrun that helicopter, right? And the shine's light. They see from above. They can see it all. They can see that field you're trying to run into. They can see uh, the dog that knows where the kid is. Like all these cool stories because they're from above. And this is what John's saying. He must increase, but I must decrease because he who comes from above is above all. If you want to know how you respond to this today, you trust and believe that he is above all. That, that he must increase when Jesus increases, joy increases and it must. Are you at peace with obediently following him and what he's called you to do? How, how would you know? I, I want to give some really practical things about how I follow this, how I struggle with this. Like, how would you know what God's called you to, how you should do it? A kid asked uh, two nights ago and Riley and I were sitting on the stage. Uh, one of the kids said, how, why are you here? <laughs> And I said, ah, because God told me to be, you know, I got five kids and coming to play worship at 3MT every night is a big cost on my family. Uh, but God told me to be here. And this kid said something so grave he said, how did you know God told you that? Ooh, Ooh son. <laughs> And I told him, well, actually, I've had this conversation with my kids. My daughter asked me a lot, how do you hear God speak to you? And to save a long conversation, uh, I just want to say we have a limitation of language and knowledge, right? And so arrogant that we could think that when we use words like God speak to us, that we've really had the monopoly on understanding what that actually means. It's possible that God speaks to us in ways and realms that we don't fully have words to. And that's why when people explain God speaking to them, it never feels like enough to you. You're like, well, maybe I've never heard God speak to me or my ways God speaks to me is better. It's possible Because God is limitless, that even the phrase God speaks to me limits how he communicates. And my experience is this. God puts thoughts, ideas, knowledge into me, and they just keep coming up. And I can't get away from them. I can't think them away. I can't overthink them. And they tend to be consistent and peaceful. They don't bring disorder and chaos and fear. They bring a sort of peace and confidence. And those things are always backed up in his word. In fact, most of them are usually directly connected to his word. And then those things always back up. I I run them through other people. When we did the cup thing up here last week. I felt like God told me to do that. And it was weird. I was like, I don't want to order a bunch of cups and that'd be the wrong thing to do. So I I read it about in scripture and I asked a few people in church, I asked Carrie. And she was like, yeah, that's terrible. Don't do that. I'm just kidding. (laughs) She she said, no, that sounds really great. That'd be really helpful. Right? And so that's why I told this kid, if you want to know how he increases, is how God speaks to you. Are you talking to him and are you listening? I don't need to go in and tell you again about doing 10 minutes of silence in the morning. You've heard me say that enough, but that's been really big. But let me tell you very specifically what you can start doing tomorrow morning or right now when you go to lunch, right? In life group, start your life group this way in a few minutes. When we do response here in a few minutes, just do this, open your hands and say, Jesus, you must become greater and I must become less. And I don't know what that means. Tell it. Because all of Psalms tells us that we can cry out to God and we can be doubtful and frustrated. Hey, you said you would do this and you don't. We can, we can come to God with that honesty. And every morning, just about in my life, I say, God, I want you to increase and I want to decrease. And I don't know what that means. And so I need you to show me. And then I say the same thing almost every morning. I pray from Matthew 6 verses 9 and 10. I say, may your kingdom come. And your will be done. There's a reason why you hear me pray that every Sunday as we close here. Because it's deeply meaningful to me. Because it's rooted in scripture. That, that, that his kingdom must come and his will must be done. Not David's kingdom. Not Memorial's kingdom. Not the new visitor's kingdom. Not the, the people who, uh, if only their marriage got better's kingdom. No, no, no. All that steps aside. His kingdom comes and his will be done because John has a different vision than this comparative culture, this puffed up bloat that constantly makes us busy and painful and fragile. John says he must increase because he's above all. He sees it. And so we recognize that. And so every morning or maybe in the afternoon, maybe on your lunch break, you just drop to your knees and open your hands and say, or sit in your chair, whatever you need to do to posture yourself, to focus and just simply pray, Jesus, you must increase and I must decrease. Help me know what that means. May your kingdom come and your will be done. And as you do that, he'll begin to speak to you and tell you how to obediently follow him. And and I want to close with giving a few examples of what that looks like. Not too fast. Um, Sorry, Nate. Uh, At the risk of going long, I felt led to to push some of these things today. Uh, what, What is God calling you to do? Because some of us, maybe God's called us to be baptized and we're like, I don't know. That's what young people do. That's what kids do. Or I don't want to get baptized again. I'm not going to do that. Right? And maybe it just keeps coming up. and You're like, shut up, David, quit mentioning that. But maybe God's calling you to do that. Maybe God's calling you to join the church because you've never come up here and said, man, I, I need to be a committed member of this church. I need to understand that as a committed member, I need a local group of people that I'm following Jesus with because all of the Bible is communal. It is a new creation, a new humanity together. And maybe that's what God's calling you, speaking to you as he increases, man, I I need to get over myself and I need to join the church. In our church, we're trying to raise up marriage mentors. Everyone in this room knows a broken marriage and has been impacted by a marriage that is crumbling or has recently, has recently been falling apart. And we just sit by too often with this, or we give our two cents. Well, I knew all along, or well, I saw coming, shut up, stop. Who cares what you saw coming? What did you do, church? And at the risk of sounding angry and mean, I just want to push on you. Like, why aren't you mentoring those people? Even if you're not married, do you, have you read Ephesians 5? Do you understand the bride of Christ? Do you understand love? Why aren't you mentoring those people? Why aren't you stepping into them? If you right now are hearing, even if you're watching from home, you say, okay, he must increase, uh, I, could, I could meet with a married couple and just at least Talk to them about how to trust Jesus. I'll at least just pray with them. Please, please come up to Carrie and I after church and say, I'm interested in at least pursuing what that could look like. I want to see our city raise up people in churches that are willing to walk through hard marriages with people, to walk through hard parenting issues with people. Because I can't do it all. I can't sit with every broken marriage. You know, broken marriages right now. I haven't talked to them. Adam doesn't got time. Like, come on, there's so much going on. How can we meet with all of them? Because we're supposed to be doing this as one body. If God's calling you to do that, maybe that's your step. We have a children's ministry, a youth ministry. We have, we have kitchen staff that cook stuff on Wednesdays. Uh, they're all concerned, man, what happens in the future? When are people going to step up and join in? Those ministries are going great. But, but what's God calling you to do? How is he increasing in your life? Coyote Hill. Coyote Hill. We're constantly partnering with them in growing to raise up more foster families to, to help kids. Coyote Hill says it's a safe place to be a child. Because kids are in these dark, awful places. And we've seen seen that happen through through different um, uh, fostering and adoption. We've seen lives change, but it's also very difficult. It's like, how can you step into that? Certainly, you could make a meal once a week for a family that's fostering a kid. The Loring's foster three kids right now. They would love for you to make them a pan of food one night a week. That would be so great for them. And if you know foster families, man, that stuff is so great. Because all of a sudden, they, they feel seen. They understand, man, God called me to do this fostering thing, and it's hard. And they see the church surrounding them and say, hey, we, we love you. We're going to serve you. He must increase. We must become less. The missions team is always welcoming people. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, our church used to do this, and I wish our church did this, or we need this mission. Why aren't you doing it? Why don't you step in and say, man, I think God's called me to do this, and I feel really ill-equipped, and I ain't got nothing, but, but it's been on my heart and mind. He must increase. We must become less. Why aren't you stepping into those things? Every week we talk about sacrificial giving, about time and money and energy and stuffs. What does that look like for you? How does your bank accounts or how you spend your time or how you use your stuff communicate that he must become greater and you must become less, that he is above all? Most simply, how are you living life with those around you asking them things like, hey, how's your relationship with Jesus going this week? How can I be praying for you? What has God been speaking to you about this week? Maybe you're the person that needs to start that Bible study in their home that turns into a rippling ministry that uh, tons of people keep coming to and hearing about the Lord. He must increase. We must become less. John the Baptist didn't stop at comparing himself to Jesus or the world around him. He recognized that Jesus was from above. He recognized that comparing pride wasn't going to lead anywhere. As we move to a time of response, I uh, apologize if any of this is overly heavy handed or if it's too long for you or it's been too distracting or me holding an apple is just really messing up everything. Uh, I really do love apples. Um, This is our time to respond. This is your time to open your hands. And if you have no idea what to do during this time, I would encourage you to open your hands and say, how does your kingdom come and your will be done in my life, Lord? How do you increase how do i become less what does that look like or as we simply say in our church look to jesus take time to look to him maybe you need to come up and pray uh, i'll be up here um, keith Carrie will be up if, if you need someone to pray with this is your time to respond this isn't your time to say oh we've only got two or three more minutes left of service let's go cuz we got things to do this is your time to respond to the lord he's spoken through his word and now we respond let's pray Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for how you speak to us, for giving us your word. Gotta pray against all the distractions, the insecurities, the things that puff us up. I pray that your spirit would pierce through those. And that the only thing that we would remember today is that Jesus is everything and that you have made a right relationship with us through our faith in Jesus. God, may your spirit speak beyond words, beyond what I know. God, that we would hear from you in this time of response. Teach us to open our hands to you. May we see your kingdom come and your will be done. Amen. Take time to respond to the Lord.